Well, we have a very interesting next two weeks. I apologize. <laughs> next two weeks, we are going to embark on a very odd journey that some of y'all may have never uh, taken before. We're going to go into one of my favorite Old Testament books uh, that it's kind of undervalued, it's kind of uh, undersized. Uh, it's a minor prophet, doesn't mean that he doesn't actually, he's not that good, it just means that it's a smaller book. And so it's actually a really small book, it only has two chapters. And so we're, I'm here, I preach this week and next week. And so chapter one this week, chapter two next week, very simple. And it's a book called Haggai. Raise of hands of anyone who's ever heard of Haggai. Some of you guys, I've heard of a guy. <laughs> We're not reading a book by, guy, by a guy, but by the prophet Haggai. That's an actual name. Uh, it's a very, uh, very uh, confrontive message and a very com- comforting message that Haggai brings to his people. Uh, and so I, I love this book because it, it shakes me, it rocks me, uh, but I also get to hear uh, gospel love through it. Uh, when, I was a, when I was a teenager, when I was younger, I, I had it, my youth pastor... Uh, come up to me and he had uh, a jar, one of those mason jars, and he put four or five big rocks in it. And he asked me this question, is it full? I saw rocks brimming out of the jar and I said, yeah, yeah, looks kind of full. And he said, oh, really? And he had a little Ziploc bag of gravel. I don't know why he had all this ready for me. (laughs) And so he had a little Ziploc bag of gravel and he poured it in and it went between where the big rocks were. And he said, now is it full? And I was like, ah, you got me. (laughs) Yes, now it's full. And he goes, really? Okay. And he had another Ziploc bag of sand. You know, sand is just tiny little rocks. That's overrated. All right. So he just pours the sand in there that goes between the gravel and between the big rocks. He says, now is it full? And I'm just so self-conscious of being wrong. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not sure how else they could get things in there. And he's like, I don't think you know what you're talking about, but you're right. Uh, and so he grabs a, a glass of water and pours the water in. He says, now is it full? And I was like, I don't know. Don't ask me these questions. <laughs> and it, it was full then. It was full. And the point of this illustration, the point of what he was trying to tell me was if you don't get the big rocks into the jar first, they'll never get in. If I switch things around, if I put the water, the sand, and the gravel, it would be so full, you would never get the big rocks into the jar. You have to break the jar to get the big rocks in. And so the the point he was trying to tell me is the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main things. And so today, we're going to be talking about priorities. We're talking about gospel priorities. And what happens when our priorities become backwards and the temple or the house of the Lord, or the church, is affected by it. And so today we're going to embark on this two-week journey through this crazy book of Haggai. And so I I ask you to stand with me as we look at Haggai 1 from the Old Testament. It's between Zechariah and Zephaniah. If you have a Bible, or you can look in your bulletins. Yeah, come on up. Or if you have a table of contents, that's a good way to find it. Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the words of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. 
Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. The word of the Lord. Be seated. Oh, Father, we ask that you would clear out our ears this morning, till our hearts, ready our minds to hear from you. We know your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, and so we ask that you would use this word, you would use this sword to cut through the clutter of life, and that we may actually hear from you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' heavenly name. Amen. Well, today we are going to be looking at God's house in its threefold state. We're going to be looking at, and I, I like to do this so it's a little easier to remember. Uh, we are going to look at God's house as the deserted house, as the desolate house, and the delivered house. I know it sounds cheesy, but sometimes that helps. <laughs> and we're going to look at the deserted house, the desolate house, and then finally the delivered house. And so look at the, the deserted house here. Look at me at verse 1. Uh, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of the Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Wow. <gasps> scintillating, isn't it? Now I know why it's my favorite book in the Old Testament. I understand, I understand. It's hard to really enjoy that. But Haggai is beginning his book, his, his, his book here, uh, as starting off with a signpost in history. He's putting up a signpost uh, to help us know when are we? What's going on? And so he says, in the second year of King Darius, and you may say, well, that doesn't mean anything for me. But it's as if someone says, well, during the, the Clinton administration, all of a sudden, all of these, these thoughts and memories come flooding through your head and saying, well, this happened then, this war was going on then. Or during the Reagan administration, and you start thinking, okay, that's what's going on. So he says, during the second year of King Darius, what's going on? What has led up to this? 
What's the background? What's, what, what's the, the warlike situation? And the, these are the questions we ought to be asking. And so the greatest king in all of scripture is probably our best signpost to figure out where we're at. The greatest king in all of scripture is King David. And he reigned from 1010 BC to about 970 BC. And he's one of those great monumental uh, signposts to say, that's where King David is, so I understand where other things are now. And so King David is, is 1010 to 970. Then after him came his son Solomon. He reigned for 40 years, and after that, the kingdom fell apart. Literally. The kingdom fell apart. After Solomon, the, 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 northern, the, the, the kingdom was divided to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And at, at the northern kingdom of Israel, they followed after evil king, after evil king, after evil king. And the southern kingdom of Judah wasn't much better. They had evil kings. They had a few good ones. They had Hezekiah and they had Josiah. Uh, but their kingdom, too, deteriorated. As the people of Israel started to, to focus and put their energy and their love and their affections towards idols instead of Yahweh. They started worshiping other things and gods other than Yahweh. And so God handed them over. And he did it in this way that the Israel or Judah was at war with the Assyrians this whole time. And while they were warring with the Assyrians, along came a spider in the name of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And they overtook Judah. And when they overtook Judah in 586 BC, what they did was they burnt the whole city to the ground. They completely ravished it. They took their most prized possessions and burned them and broke them to the ground. And the most prized of all the possessions was the temple. Their temple burnt, crushed, rubble. And the people of Israel then exiled to Babylon. And God didn't take his hand off the rudder of the ship yet. He still spoke to them through the prophets of Ezekiel and Daniel. But just imagine with me, if you will. I know history sometimes for you, maybe for you it's, it, this is boring. Uh, but if you put yourself into the shoe, realizing that these are, these are real people going through this real event of being thrust out of their homes. Imagine yourself being taken, ripped out of your home to be put into a foreign country. To be slaves. For 49 years. That's a long time to be in slavery. For 49 years. One generation has passed. A new generation is coming. Some of those have lived through all of it. For 49 years. And then in God's grace, he raised up the Persian king Cyrus. And Cyrus said, let the people go. Let the people go back. And not only let them go, but he commanded the governor with the greatest name, Zerubbabel, (laughs) and the high priest, uh, Joshua, to go back and to rebuild the temple. So he doesn't say just let them go. This Persian king has no affiliation with, with the Jewish religion and says, go back and rebuild your temple. And then 16 years later, 16 years later, after they're freed from prison... And they're commanded to go build the temple. We're here with the, with the second king of Persia, King Darius, in his second year. And the temple is still in ruins. So they've had, they have this, this war-torn country. They've been taken to slavery. They come back and they have 16 years and the temple is still isn't built. And that's where we're at now. Look at me in verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Their answer, they're not saying we're not going to rebuild it. They just said, it's not time yet. 
I'm, I'm not ready, God. It, it, we know you asked us to do it, but it's not time. I mean, these people are coming back from being enslaved uh, and trying to come back to rebuild their normal lives. They're trying to rebuild their homes and probably have, a, probably have an air of entitlement to them. Seems almost justifiably so to say, given what I've been through, I deserve something nice. Given the, the, the terrible life I've lived thus far, something good is coming to me. I'm do it. This is kind of what I like to call vacation syndrome. <laughs> Some of you guys just recently been on vacation. We just went on vacation this past week to Galveston. Don't go. Um, <laughs> not that our vacation was bad, but just the city of Galveston is the worst right now. <laughs> the seaweed is all over the beaches and mosquitoes, like everywhere, like a swarm. It's like a plague. I don't know what's going on. You hit them and there's blood everywhere. Um, that's free. Um, just save yourself the trip. Um, but on vacation, we all have the vacation syndrome. We, we're like, I've saved up and I've worked hard and I'm, this week I'm going to relax. I am relaxing this week. I am due a good sunburn on the beach. <laughs> I, am, I, I definitely deserve brownies and ice cream after every meal. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And if you question me, you say, I'm on vacation. And it's, that's okay. You're right. You're on vacation. You deserve it. <laughs> and it's vacation syndrome. We all have it. But we have the vacation syndrome of the soul. And so we bring it from vacation, we bring it to life. And we go to uh, restaurants, and someone doesn't bring us the chips right away. And you say, ugh, where are my chips? <laughs> I'm do this. So they know how hard of a day I've had. I need my chips and salsa. Uh, and so we have the vacation syndrome of the soul. <laughs> and we say, uh, God, it's not time for you. I'm do something better. It's not time for you. It's time for me. And let me point out to you, um, what ha- let, let Haggai and God point out to you bluntly his response to that. Uh, with some gusto and some sarcasm. In verse 4 he says, Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? The word paneled there. The Hebrew word for paneled is only ever used one other time in, in, in the Bible. And it's in 1 Kings, and it's referring to Solomon's temple. The only other time that word paneled is used when it's referring to the, the paneled wood from Lebanon, that, this decorative wood that they made for the house of the Lord, this very expensive, very elaborate wood. And he says, it's a time for you to be paneling your house with, not just, a, not just building a hut, <laughs> But to have this over-the-top paneled house while the house of the Lord remains in ruin. You can imagine the fire that's growing in Haggai and imagine the fire that's growing in the Lord and saying, I just disciplined you for this very reason. You were going after worshiping other idols and other gods and I, I let you go into slavery. I've just released you to finally worship me and you say, I'm content to be without you? Now let me offer a qualifier before we move on. If you have a paneled house, if you have nice things in your house, God is not saying that you have a house of sin. Um, that's not the thrust of this. Um, some of you have you know, side panels. That's not really that nice <laughs> on the outside of the house. But he's not saying that if you have nice things, you have a house of sin or this is bad. That's not the thrust. He's trying to say the order in which you value these things makes a difference. The order in which you place those things makes a difference. The order in which you place those activities makes a difference. The order in which you place those people make a difference. And so we see that our priorities have become all out of whack. 
And the people of God have been redeemed. They've been let go. They've been freed for the sole purpose of building the temple. And what's the, what's the point of a temple? What's the point of the temple? Why, why is that such a big deal? The temple was God's way to show physically through the slaughter of lambs and the blood that the lines of communication were open again. That you could go and actually speak to God. They were redeemed so that they can go and actually be in a relationship with God. And so when he, they come, God speaks to them 16 years later and says, my house is still lying in ruins. What they're saying to God is, we need you not. I have all I need. What do I need you for? Now is this relevant to today? <laughs> I think I've said this somewhere else, uh, maybe not here. I feel like our number one sin in America is materialism. And that one's just almost too obvious. It's, I don't even want to make it the point. <laughs> we have to have, we have to consume, we have to purchase. I have to have these things. Um, I think one that's less obvious is, is, think of it this way. Whenever someone asks you to, to do something, and when you say yes to someone, you're saying no to someone else. So if my dad asks me to go play golf, I say yes. Now I have four hours of the day that I've said no to, right? I've said no to those four hours. Uh, and so when you say yes to, some, to one thing, you're saying no to another. That's not a sin, but it becomes a sin when you continue to say yes to good things and no to the best things, right? When you say yes to so many lesser things that you neglect the better, the best things, the most important things, and usually the number one thing to go first is our, is our time with God. That's the first thing to go, I'm sorry, I, don't, I can't make it. I've got so much to do, God. I've got so much time uh, spent elsewhere. I don't really have time to, to, to be in your word. I don't have time to be with you. Sometimes I feel like a yes man. You feel like the Jim Carrey movie, Yes Man. Someone asks you to do something, you say yes no matter what. <laughs> hey, you want to hang out? Yes, let's do it. Whatever. What, what, what do you want to do? <laughs> Coffee? Golf? Frisbee? What is it? Um, I mean, I feel like I need to have that, that marketing slogan from the 80s uh, to say no to drugs. Just say no. Just say no. Just say no. Because when I'm saying yes to this, I'm saying no to this. I'm saying yes to this, I'm saying no to usually the first thing to go is our time with God. And so we're already overcommitted. Usually our time is already overcommitted. We're already way too busy. And we say yes all the time. And we say, I have no room for God. And so we say, is this, a, this is a sermon on priorities. And the question is, how can I fit God in my life? That's not really a question I want you to ask. Not how can I fit God into my life. But when you talk about priority, is how can I let God have priority over my life? How can he own it? Many times we want to say, can, can, I, can I love God and have the life that I want? Probably not. <laughs> I mean, that, that's kind of the basics of Christianity. Uh, no one can serve two masters. And God comes to his people and says, is it time? And the people say, no, it's not time. And we do that all the time. We come up with millions of excuses. We do the same thing. And so we, we see that the house is deserted. We leave it alone. And it's about to get worse before it gets better. We've deserted the house of God, and now we see the desolate house of God. And the, this is what we see. The consequences for putting our heart's desire first is told here. Uh, look with me at verse 5. 
Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. And he reiterates the same thing in verses 9 through 11. What we see here are the two consequences uh, to not rebuild the temple. And the first is, is pretty simple in saying that you've planted, but the, the harvest is little. Even the land and sky know to withhold their bounty from you. That God is withholding these things from the earth, is holding them, these things from you. Though you are famished, your crops don't grow. But then secondly, he says, with the food that you do get, the food that you do get, it doesn't satisfy. The rainwater that you get doesn't actually quench. The bags that you have for all of your money have holes in it. And it never seems to hold your money. Your clothes don't seem to warm you. Whenever I, whenever I uh, hear this, I, I, my first thought is of that old cartoon character, uh, Elmer Fudd. You know, Elmer Fudd, he's got this plaid shirt and he's got that shotgun, I believe, and a ridiculous hat. And he's, he's chasing Daffy Duck around. And he's running after Daffy Duck and he's always shooting this duck. I don't know why. Um, he's always shooting this duck and for some reason, whenever he shoots the duck, the duck is always holding a glass of water. Not sure why he's always drinking water. And then he shoots him and there's like a spray of, you know, whatever, 12 uh, holes through Daffy Duck. And he still decides to drink the cup of water. Not put it down and tend to his holes, but <laughs> he drinks the cup of water and it, 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 fly, it, it drains out of him. And you just watch the water drain out of him. And so he, we see the picture of him drinking, but not ever being quenched. They're not ever being satisfied by what you're drinking. Now, that's kind of the, the, the funny example. I think a more modern, more up-to-date, more uh, serious example is of Captain Barbosa uh, from the first Pirates of the Caribbean movies. You seen that? I don't know how you haven't. Um, <laughs> um, Captain Barbosa, you know the main the main uh, pirate. He and his other mates uh, are cursed. They're cursed, and they're in a sense they're they're like the Walking Dead. They're alive, but they're not alive. Uh, they 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 can walk around, they can fight, they can eat, but they can never really be alive. And he he describes his situation here as the Walking Dead, and he says. We're not among the living, and so we cannot die. But neither are we dead. And for too long I've been parched of thirst and unable to quench it. Too long I've been starving to death and haven't died. I feel nothing. Not the wind on my face, nor the spray of the sea. This is what Haggai is talking about. When we mix up our gospel priorities... And we feel empty inside. And nothing seems to satisfy. We can consume, but nothing really stays in. We think this will make me happy, but this doesn't make me happy. And we see that meaning is fleeting. C.S. Lewis wrote a bunch on this uh, odd part of nature. Uh, he, He called it first and second things. If you've read this. But he talks a lot about something as silly as loving your dog. Um, and if you don't love dogs, you, you can insert cat or giraffe or whatever animal that you really love. Uh, try to avoid giraffes because I've heard they're deadly, by the way. Uh, but uh, insert dog if you love dogs. So I'm a dog lover. I love dogs. And so he says it's first and second things. If you, if you put your dog, which is a second thing, and make it a first thing, you actually lose the love for that dog. 
you actually don't, you're not able to actually love that dog rightly and properly. He says, the woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses in the end not only her human usefulness and dignity, and we all know someone like that that just is like the crazy cat lover <laughs> or has like a hundred dogs and you're like, how do you do that? Um, <laughs> so she loses in her head not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. <laughs> She does not even able to enjoy her dog in the right way. Or we, we, if you don't like animals at all, um, you have to like ninfas. And so if you go to ninfas and you go, you eat their chips and salsa, and especially the green salsa, it is addicting. You put your hand on a chip and you're like a machine gun. <laughs> just, I don't know how to stop. Where's my, where's my, oh, I need two hands. This is nice. And so you just, I don't know how to stop. It's just so good. But by the time the main meal comes, you're so full on chips and salsa, you're like, oh, I don't think I want anything. <laughs> I feel sick, actually. And so what happened was you made the second thing, the appetizer, the main thing, and now, you, now you're full on, on appetizer, and it actually made you sick. So you don't actually get to enjoy the appetizer nor the main dish. Let's say you don't like ninfas, which I know is hard to say. Um, let's say you go to Olive Garden, and you get, you get loaded up on their bread and oil, right, or olive oil, and you say you're dipping, and all of a sudden you have no room for the pasta. There's no way any more carbs can go into my body. (laughs) And so you're full. You're full on the appetizer and not the main meal. And that's what we're doing to Jesus all the time. That's the thrust of Haggai's message here. There's an apparent order to life. There are first and second things. And we must be keeping first things first, second things second. Otherwise, Lewis says, you can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things by putting first things first. Or keep the main thing the main thing. And what's the main thing? To be thrilled by the fact that the God of the universe would stoop down and love you and me. And want to actually be in a relationship with you and me. There's, that's a first order. That's supreme. Or think about it this way. Remember back um, to when you were dating. For some of you, that may be a long time ago. Some of you, that's currently when you're dating, uh, let's say high school age, or if you have a limit, they have to be after 18, let's say college age. Um, <laughs> remember back to that, or, or courting, however you want to call it, and you're dating this person, and what's the most common pitfall during this age? Is to make that person, that girl, that boy, the main thing. To make the second thing the, the number one thing. And so we see this all the time when, when, when guys go after girls and they make them the main thing. They're like a puppy dog, uh, you know, just following them around. And they, they, they pretty much stop coming to church. They pretty much give up on, on God. And so they lose the relationship with God. But then they also lose the relationship with that girl or that guy. Because they've tried to ask this guy or this girl to be what God is. They've tried to ask this girl to satisfy. To be my everything. And they start wondering, why didn't you call me back right away? What, what did that text mean? Why does that emoji have a wink face, not a smiley face with a heart? What does it mean? <laughs> you get overly, you, you, you just, you get needy, and no one likes that. And so this is really how I got Kristen. You know, I just realized I just treat her like dirt, and she couldn't resist. Yeah. I can only say that because she's not here right now. <laughs> just joking. But there's a natural order to things. Natural order of first and second things. And God is saying, you failed in making me first. You have put your own paneled houses first. And because of that, you're not even able to enjoy them. And so with that vacation syndrome of saying, I deserve rest this week. You never get rest when you say, I deserve rest. I have to get rest this week. I have to enjoy the beach. And God sends plagues of seaweed and and mosquitoes (laughs) to make sure that you realize you put that first. 
we always have to have vacation from vacation because we want those first things, those second things to be first things. And God says, there's an order. You can't even enjoy those things. Or if you're about to make a huge purchase in life, you're about to buy a house, you have all these, these, these uh, aspirations of what it'll be. Oh, this will be so great. Have all this room, this, this, this space to entertain, to actually have family over. And after a few weeks, of you start having buyer's remorse set in. And you say, it's just a house. It's got a mortgage. Has things that I need to fix. Hasn't really made me any happier than I used to be. And we get, we get depressed because we keep longing for this. We're saying, maybe my hope will be here. Maybe my hope will be here and nothing seems to satisfy. Nothing satisfies. And we, get, we, we, we wallow. And we can wallow and wallow into depression. But God is using those times of wallow to push you to say, nothing does satisfy but me alone. Nothing satisfies but me alone. And so the question for you I ask is, does your bag have holes in it? Think about that. Is, does your bag have holes in it? Do you, do you, are you starting to see that the fulfillment, the purpose, the happiness that you keep trying to attain ooze out of your bag quicker than you can put it in? We see that the deserted house leaves you desolate. And so God steps in and he delivers the house here. In verse 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. God says, build my house. You might say, is that really what he's saying? Or is he saying, God blesses those who take care of themselves? Or how does the phrase go? God helps those who help themselves. Just so you know, that's not scripture. (laughs) Don't ever quote that as scripture. God helps those who help themselves. No, God says, build my house. And when you build my house... You put first things first, you actually do get second things. His command to build is not calloused. It's actually compassionate because it's what we truly need. He's not barking out orders like a tyrant or a boss that doesn't like you. He's saying, build my house because that's what you need. You need the relationship. He's commanding to build the temple because it's what's good for us. Seek first the kingdom of God and all this will be given to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. And you say, well, what's this application for us? Is this a, a plea uh, to build another building at this church? A plea to pay off the mortgage? A plea to build a youth gymnasium? Maybe, maybe. Or maybe a plea to, to, to go book a plane ticket to go to Jerusalem and actually rebuild the temple? No, 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 no. no none of those are right. Well, maybe. Um, none of those are <laughs> First uh, Corinthians six says, "Do you not know that your body is the living temple? Your body is the temple." And it sounds cliche, but we're the temple now. We're the temple now. The temple was where God's was where God resided. The temple is where God actually met with His people, and now the Holy Spirit being poured out in our hearts because of what Jesus has done. You and me, we are the temple. We are the church. Not this building, but our own hearts, our own, our own souls is where God resides now. And so I ask you, ask you this question, how is your heart today? Is it lying in ruins as the people in Haggai's day? Is it time to build? I ask, how can I fit into my life? No. How can I let him take over my life? 
there's a pastor, uh, theologian, writer, a guy named Francis Chan. Uh, and he has this, this illustration. He says, uh, imagine you're driving along, uh, you're, your life is like you're driving along the road. Uh, just imagine you're, you're in this, ro- not any particular road, uh, but you, your life is you're driving along the road. And as you, you go to school, that's a marker. As you, you uh, get married, that's a marker. As you, uh, whatever it is, ha- have a kid, that's a marker. Uh, but as you drive along the road, you see Jesus. And Jesus shares with you the gospel. He shares with you that you've been storing up wrath since day one, and that he's offered to take that wrath for you, and you become thrilled by that fact, and you say, this is amazing news, and you become a believer, wherever that day is, that day may be today for you, that would be awesome, praise God if that's true, that day may have been a a long time ago for you, but wherever that day is, a lot of times what happens is we do get excited about Jesus, and we say, that's great, that's great, and so we get out of our car, and we go to the back, and we open the trunk, and we say, okay, get in Jesus, I'm still driving the car. I'm still in control of my life. You're very useful. You're like, you're like a jack if, if, my, if my car breaks down. I can, I can use you as like a tool. And Francis Chan says, we call him Lord, but we really mean slave. We say, we're in control. We grip our hands along the steering wheel and say, we're the ones in charge of this life. I, I lead, I direct you want to come along, Jesus? You want to add, add to my life? Of course, Jesus doesn't get in the trunk. <laughs> Jesus is like having the remote control. He's actually steering your car even though you don't know it. <laughs> Why am I going this direction? <laughs> is God my genie in the trunk? We try to live our lives and go after life and every other thing but in Jesus himself and the first thing. And we cut out all the room for Jesus and we say yes to so many things that we have no time for God. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. As we're driving along, do we find out that our hearts are restless? Have you found out that your heart is feeling empty? Haggai, Haggai, Agai urges you to consider your ways. Has your current path brought you to a state of joy? Has actually pay, played out the way you thought? Maybe God's using this time for you to wallow, to push you to, to come back to him. And so God says, build my house, build the temple. We said it earlier in our confession in Mark 8, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And so what's of utmost importance? What rocks need to go in first? What rocks need to go into that jar first? And I, I think it's clear, it's, it's our time with Jesus. Time to hear the good news. Time to hear that you're his daughter and you're his son and that you're loved and cherished. If I hear that, that'll change things. If I hear the promise that's given in verse 13, these four beautiful words, I am with you, the Emmanuel principle that God is with us, if I hear those words that I am with you, that'll change everything. And that comes to its climax when Christ actually incarnates himself and becomes with us, lives and dies for us. I am with you changes everything. I am with you reorients your life and reorients what you value. 
I am with you reorients who you value. If I actually believe that I am, that Yahweh is actually with me, that'll change the life that I seek. That'll change what I count as valuable and what I count as important. Because I see that the God of the universe died to be with me. I am with you. Changes it all. And so the rock that we need most is I am with you. Which is really the Christ. The rock of Christ to be put in that jar first. And as the hymn goes, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Do you believe that? That all other ground is sinking sand. Haggai and God is trying to sing a love song to you. When you feel empty, when you feel like Captain Barbosa, like the walking dead, and say, don't put me as number one just to put me as number one. He's saying, put me as number one because that's what you need. You need me to be with you, to love you. Christ sings, your hope is built on my blood and righteousness. And because of that, God says, I am with you. And he makes his temple in your heart. Let's pray. Yahweh, I am.